was if you have uh, something sold, particularly as a psalter, the, what Carla just read will sort of be marked in there normally on how to sing it. And it's great, I've been talking about how I've been reading along sort of with St. Augustine's expositions on the Psalms as we've sort of been walking through these Psalms of Ascent. And he always says, like, right when he starts, he's like, you know, as we sang that psalm, um, which says that in the fourth century, the Christians were taking time to sing the psalms together, that they had, they had called this sort of out as the prayer book that would make up them as a people, too. Um, and, and Augustine is, is great in his quote. We talked about when we did the worship series. He who sings his prayers prays twice. Um, so he who, she who sings the psalms prays them twice. Is that there's this way in which, uh, and this was a long time ago that he did this, uh, but there's this way in which song actually engages our brains and mouths and bodies in a different way than just reading stuff out loud. It sort of resonates in a different way. In some sense, singing is is making your body this instrument that sort of praises and resounds to the Lord. So, so just reading them is one thing, but when you invite them in your body as song, your body sort of moves in a different way to what has been read. So thank you, Carla, for that this morning. Uh, also bold. I see those marks all the time, and I'm like, no, not going to do it. Even at home by myself, I don't know what it is. Uh, I don't firmly believe enough and uh, make a joyful song to the Lord. It does says joyful. It doesn't say beautiful. It doesn't say perfect. It says make a joyful song to the Lord. So, um, And that's one of the gifts of having children join us for the music time during worship, is that we get to hear them make their joyful song to the Lord. And they do it without shame, which is... The adults seem to struggle with that. Um, but anyways, this is um, our seventh sermon, and this is the tenth psalm in these psalms of ascent, if you're following along. And this one um, is a, a little bit different. It's it's It um, talks about this oppression that they've been experiencing, this, this sort of what's going on, and ask for God. Uh, it, it points to what God has done. Um, but the way that the psalm is shaped is it's shaped almost as like an agricultural thing from beginning to end. Is that it was oppressed, they plowed, uh, and then it ends with a harvest. That there's this movement in the psalm that sort of brings it agriculturally through and through. And as I was sitting with the psalm this week, 129 is, and this happens to me oftentimes with scriptures, first reading I'm like, well, great. I decided to preach the Psalms of Ascent. Today is Psalm 129. Um, but as I sit with them, it doesn't happen every time, but oftentimes as I sit with them over the course of the week, and, and you begin to notice different patterns in the structure of the thing and how it works and how it builds and how it moves. And this is, this is one of the reasons why we've talked about for us here at Defiance Church to bring it into the Psalms into our prayer life. Because if you are doing a Bible in the year plan and you get to the Psalms, you often just sort of blitz right through them. It's like, oh, I just have to read four Psalms today and then move on. Eventually get to Psalm 119 and you're like, wow, that was long. And then you move on from that. But if you pray the Psalms, if you just pick one a week, or if you listen to the, the podcast way at the beginning of the series, Eugene Peterson sort of took seven for his life. And every day of the week, he would just, he would pick ones that sort of made up all the themes of the Psalms as he could figure out. And he took seven. And so each Monday he would pray Psalm 8 and each Thursday would pray Psalm 100 and each. And so he would make those Psalms more and more concrete to his life. And so that's been part of one of the arguments of, of sort of this series is that moving the Psalms into our prayer life and the gift that that can be and the ways in which it can help us and move us and enable us to see 
And I certainly had that relationship to Psalm 129 this week, because like I said, on the first reading, I was like, I don't know what's going on here. But this psalm starts, and we talked about this in the Numbers series, is it starts with Israel as one person. Now, this happens in the scriptures, particularly in the Hosea reading that, that Brian read for us. It says, when Israel was young, that what God looks at as this corporate people named Israel, the Hebrews, um, is he sees one person, sort of one body that's in the world. Oftentimes in our culture, we're sort of very individualistic. So we're like, yeah, but which part of that is me? Um, you know, if you're asking that question, it's like, you get some less great part. Um, but but the, it's the same image that Paul uses for the church in the New Testament, that the church is the body of Christ, that there's this corporate sort of identity to it. And when you think that way about Israel, when you think that way of the church, it opens up other possibilities. For instance, with this psalm, it talks about oppression. Well, here in the 21st century North America, the church doesn't experience oppression that much. But if the church is one body throughout the world, we can see that there are places where that is true, where that resonates with us, where our connection to that goes beyond us. And if you say, well, there are people, I'm having a rough go at it. In the church, there's supposed to be this way for you to look and share joy with people who are having joy in their lives. And there's this way, too, also with, with sadness, is that you think things are going great. And, and Paul sort of asks, too, that you mourn with those who are mourning. The body builds in its connections. And so it is with Israel. It's Israel in the psalm is being thought of as one person. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. So for those keeping score at home, this is the story of Israel as told through its oppressions. Begins in Egypt, in that story from the Exodus. The next group that comes along is the Moabites, and then the Canaanites, and then the Midianites, and then the Anites, and then Babylon, and then Rome, and then lots of other anti-Semitism, and then Nazi Germany. Like, we have a long history of these people being persecuted. And what this psalm says is, from my youth, it's been this way. And, and one of the reasons I think that, that this it seems true for Israel is that they live by a different set of laws and are accountable to a different sort of king. This makes a challenge for monarchies and tyrants in the world. There's a people within your land who live by a different law with a different ruler and a different king. They hear from someone else. And it's not crazy for us to take these analogs for the church as well. The church are people who live in the world. But in their living in the world, they live with a different set of laws. They live with their different king. And I think our ability to do that, our ability to transform by that, is we will find ourselves perhaps in these places of oppression as well. The more clearly we can see what God's law means for us. 
the more clearly we can begin to exemplify what God has called us into and, and, and build that into our communities, into our churches, into the world. I think perhaps this might be true of the church. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let the church say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. So there was a rabbi who pointed out that the, the history of Israel, looking at it this way, is really just one long passion story, and that's using passion in the Good Friday sense. It's, it's one long story of people sort of being defeated. It's one long story of suffering and trials. You could add more people to this list, is that this history of Israel, and, and in the next psalm, and somewhat in this psalm, it, it comes from within themselves too. You could almost on this form too. Israel at times has kings and people within do the oppression as well. They're not just foreign invaders, but people. And in this, uh, and in this psalm, they're called the haters, which is it's like waiting the twenty-first appropriation of haters. Um, don't be a hater, man. Um, uh, Shelly laughed because she hangs out with kids all day. You hear it, right? <laughs> yes. Um, it's me trying to be hip. It doesn't work all the time. Um, but uh, the, the, it's waiting this sort of haters thing. Is that these people in this psalm are called the haters that are almost sort of within their walls as well. The ones who can't partake in the goodness of what's going on. And we too know this for the church, is that the church is called to sort of live in this reality as well. I mean, if you get to the end of the Bible and your Bible and your plan, the book of Revelation, it doesn't end that happily for the church. Well, it ends that happily when Jesus comes and restores and takes up his kingdom. But up until then, it's pretty dark, uh, to say the least. Um, there's challenges and trials for the church. There are ways in which it too experiences this long passion. And Jesus himself tells us to pick up our cross and to follow him. To be a Christian is one who picks up crosses in the world and carries them. It's, it's odd that we've forgotten this. It seems so foreign to us that this is the way that this is sort of supposed to work. But it is the truth of what we're called into. And it's only, uh, well, we could get into reasons why the church has lost that in the world. But I don't think it's in our character. Um, because particularly because when you see the church in its tougher times, its witness and its strength actually grows. I think the same is true for Israel in some sense, is that as trials and challenges come, there's something deeper that begins to take root. Or like when the church gets smaller, it happens to become more faithful at the same time too. And it's that sort of paradox that, interestingly enough, this psalm is also calling out. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth, let Israel say. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Second thing is that this breaks us from the illusions that the Christian life is going to be an easy life. This is We don't say this when we do evangelism. I, I, I've always been struck by that. If you've ever used the four spiritual laws, it says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life which is true, eschatologically or in the long run. But in the short run, it looks like uh, 11 of Jesus' disciples were crucified or beheaded. God has a wonderful plan for your life that you might be martyred for his kingdom. We believe that, but when you just print it in a thing and hand it out to people, it does seem a little... You're joining a people who say, Look, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Now, we're not putting that on our church doors anytime soon either, but it is the truth of the matter. 
that, that, that Israel, as we become the church, as our history starts in Egypt too. God hears the cries of his people and rescues them. People who cry, cry for a reason. And it's God who hears those cries and rescues people. That's where we begin as well. And they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But the psalmist continues, but they have not gained victory over me. Memory, I think, is one of the most important parts in Scripture, as, as I've read it more and more growing up, is this idea as you keep going back and clinging to the fact that you have been in trials and slavery um, to sin and to death or in physical slavery or to sin or to the challenges of life. You've been oppressed. You've seen this and you've been rescued. And you remember that rescue. If you're going to move forward in hope, if you're going to grow in the virtue of patience, you need to have memory. It's not incidental. When we get to Deuteronomy, memory plays a large role. And remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Remember that past. And you can think of there's two reasons why, right? One is remember that God has rescued. The other is I'm going to give you laws to be better in the world. And you know what happens when the world is not good. I'm going to give you a better way, and the way that you will embody this better way, make this better way come, is you'll remember what happens when dysfunction reigns. Memory is the ways we sort of move forward in this. They have not yet gained victory over me. But the psalmist continues, Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. This is a, a rich metaphor. and I mean, Plowmen, and I should have put up a picture of, of somebody plowing, but I didn't have one. I didn't look for one. But like, it, I mean, people, people have seen this one. People have seen this, right? Uh, plowing, like cutting through the earth with a plow, is a deep sort of tearing. Like, it's not a simple thing. This isn't like I had a bad day. Plowmen have made, plowed my back and made their furrows long. Israel is calling out its impression in truthfulness. They don't say they didn't win because it wasn't that bad. They talk about the darkness that is in them, that has come to them, that has happened to them. To so tell the truth about that is a, is a challenge. It's they made their furrows in me. But the Lord is righteous, and he has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. It's, it's almost like they have been turned into an animal here that's doing the work, too, is that they've been sort of made into these things that do, um, like an ox that's sort of whipped and made to do work. And God has cut those cords free. This and this, this psalm, this, this phrase, but the Lord is righteous, he has cut the cords of the wicked, is perhaps the most important phrase in this psalm, as I was praying it and thinking through it, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. God has cut the cords of what the wicked will do in the world because of his righteousness. And righteousness is this uh, Hebrew word and very, uh, yes. Um, and it's one that they, they say you, you look at its context to really 
interpret it because if and hampton's been making this point in his study too is a lot of words are that way you look at the context before you pick the word that it means um, but it has this two ways that i think are helpful for the look at this the first is that it's it's a relational it's that the lord doesn't abandon that the lord is righteous means that the lord stays with you the lord doesn't turn back it proclaims in some sense that in god's rightness and in putting things to right, in being right. Faithfulness to his people is part of that. You won't be abandoned to the grave. The second is, is it, it has this sort of kingly word to it. It's, it's this one who sort of brings order in the world. Um, we looked at this, this last week. It brings sort of order out of disorder. The Lord's righteousness brings this order in a world that can seem so disordered. But God cuts the freeze from the cords of the wicked. I'm trying to think about where to go from here. God's righteousness is one that restores the people. And so the psalmist continues, May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof with widgers before it can grow. There's this, um, this one. You can imagine how long it took me. Um, Yeah, years. I started it last month. No, uh, is that there's this grass in the ground and there's this grass on the roof. Now, side note, my parents took us to Door County, uh, Wisconsin growing up. You remember this restaurant, Shelly, that has grass on the roof and goats on it? It was my favorite thing. It's one of the strongest, you guys have been there too? It's one of the strongest memories of my childhood for some reason. It's the goats on the roof in Door County. Um, <laughs> Uh, I should have found a picture of that just so people would be like, no, that really is there. At least I have witnesses that can testify. I'm not making this up. Um, but what it says is that they may be like grass on the roof, which withers before it grows. A reaper cannot fill its hands with nor one who gather fill his arms. It's almost kind of like an anti-harvest. Now, one of the things I like, don't like about this image is that you can look at grass on the roof, which is an odd image. Um, and grass in the ground. You can think about that for a long time, which I obviously did. Um, but the thing that really struck me is that there's this way in which grass on a roof um, is a bit like being propped. We're going to set ourselves up higher. We're going to be in a different spot. But what happens with pride, what happens with these things that we try to set ourselves apart with, particularly from the people on the ground, is we move to spots where we can't grow. We move to spots where we'll wither and die. And so the other grass is set in the soil. It's set in the earth. It gets nutrients from that. It's, it's sort of set in the ordered way. Grass on the roof is, is, is disordered. The grass on the ground is ordered. And when we look at the shape of the soul from beginning to end, this idea that the plowman cut deep into the ground, and yet they're like grass that withers on a roof, is an interesting sort of comparison between the two. When they cut deep into the ground, it's Israel that sinks its roots into permanence. And what they set up on high is their own selves. This reminded me of this uh, passage from Romans. 
Not only so, but we pray, we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. They've cut deep into God's people. They've made them suffer greatly. And yet they can glory in their suffering. Because the suffering produces things that last. Perseverance, character, and hope most of all. And it doesn't allow us to be put to shame. But brought out in a harness that's different. The end of the psalm, the people into the harvest. People who rejoice in Zion, rejoice in the place where God resides, are brought into this place, and that's the place where this cut actually creates something deeper. It makes a lasting effect. It changes things. One of my favorite words for patience comes from uh, the, the King James Version of the, the Fruits of the Spirit, um, and it's, it's classical because all Christian jewelry seems to come with King James lingo. So Kelly has a bracelet that has them all on there. And um, there's one very long one titled Long Suffering. Um, and long suffering is the way that the King James translated the word patience. And I think that that has a place in this psalm. That the patience which God creates in us is born of a long suffering. It takes time. It takes place for us to suffer in this. And that creates patience that is the character that brings about our rescue. May they be like grass on the growth which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill its hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. Not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. It's this greeting that is partaked by those who partake in Zion. Now, one of the things about this long suffering in the world is it always is sort of backfiring this intent towards evil. Pharaoh, when he sees that the Egyptians are, or that Hebrews are growing to too many, um, ramps up their work in this, that, and they grow even more. The attempts to stomp out what God has done, even if great suffering within us, tends to have a diverse effect. The other most example for this in the church history, which I love, is this phrase that the seed, the blood of the martyrs, becomes the seed of new converts. This is when Rome was going about killing Christians. And what they begin to found is the more of them we kill, the more seed that becomes new life, new Christians, and converts. To seek to crush what God has done, it actually creates this perverse effect of sort of multiplying its goodness in the land. They think they're in charge. They think that through evil they can create something. But what actually happens is that they come up empty in their harvest. It's like the fruit of evil is like uh, just blows away. But the fruit of goodness remains. This is the, the way in which the psalm sort of connects for us. The I'm trying to think 
if I go to the one last, that was a good final point. Do I stop there? Um, we'll go to one more. Um, this is, St. Augustine has to show up somewhere, I guess. Uh, I want to be your possession, God says. Why seek to be possessed by greed is what that word means. Its demands will be very hard on you, but mine are gentle. It is, its burden is heavy, my load is light. Its yoke is rough, mine is smooth. Do not aim to be the slave of greed. It orders you to cross seas and you obey. It orders you to risk your life in winds and storms. All I order you to do is give something of what you have to the poor person who stands at your gate. You are too lazy to do this good work that is coming your nose, but you are energetic when it asks to cross the sea. Because greed issues the order, you are a slave eager to do its bidding, but because God is its order, you hate it. This is St. Augustine commenting on this psalm. And what I wanted to point out about this final sort of example for this is, but the Lord is righteous. He has cut free the cords of the wicked. It's an example for the way that I think sin works in this passage in our lives. Sin takes on, we take on these things that come with sin, whether it be consumerism, whether it be alcoholism, whether it be pornography, whether it be um, uh, social media that sort of dictates our lives, whether it be um, excessive sports fandom, whatever it might be, we take these things on and its burdens are actually a deep slave master for us. God cuts the cords of those sins. God disarms those things and sets us free because he is righteous. And he who is free is free indeed, is what Jesus tells us. God cuts us from those things and his commands, his Fruit for us is much simpler than that. What he's saying, Augustine, is, is that if you take on, let's, let's use his example, greed, and it orders you to cross the sea, you'll do it. When you take on these, these character-deforming sort of sins, the cost that they ask of us, we go, that doesn't seem so bad. But his demands and his concerns and his burdens are easy and light. Walk out your front door and see the person who stands at your gate. Love your neighbor. Don't seek to cross the world or the seas. Love what's near to you. So this, this cutting of the cords in our lives, the cutting of these cords is we don't experience oppression in 21st century North America the same way Israel does or other parts of the church does. I think we can look at it this way is to say that we build our own oppressions. And that's part of the challenge of the modern world, I think, is we don't enslave you. We just give you the tools to build your own prisons. Go for the highest loan you can when you buy your house so that you can be imprisoned to that. Uh, get a car, get insurance. Uh, Brian's, your, uh, your daughter, your granddaughter, is going through all these challenges of buying a car. And I remember that, and I was like, man, it's like building a nice like little slave house because you have a car payment, and then you have insurance, and then you have gas, and then God forbid anything happened to the car because then, uh, then you're out like way more money. Point being is, sorry, I'm getting on my why I don't like cars that much. <laughs> They're just a lot of money. Um, is that we build these things, and they become our own sort of prisons for us. That's how the modern world gets into us. Get the phone, get the computer, get the house, get the car, get this. And that consumerism and those sins can distort us in a way that makes us forget that God's burden is easy. 
and his command is light. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut us free from the cords of the wicked. Let us pray. God, we can say we have been greatly oppressed from our youth. They have not gained victory over us. Plowmen may try to dig our graves and make their furrows long, but in there the seeds of righteousness are sown. But the Lord is righteous and he will cut us free from the cords of these wicked. We are brought into freedom. May those who hate be turned back in shame, and may they be like grass on a roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill its hand or gather and fill his arms. But may we see that this suffering, these trials, these challenges, this long suffering is the way in which we sink into the ground and grow in patience and character. May the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. So we may we pray together the prayer that Park prayed at the start of the service. Oh God, the cords of sin are strong. They bind us close to the death. But the victory you have given us in Jesus Christ, sever those cords and loosen the bonds of evil. We now live to sing. Amen.